Welcome to Policing in the Border, a series of interviews comparing the history of policing in the United States and Canada. My name is Max Hammond. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University. This is the second interview in a series that will explore the history of policing in Canada and the United States. With this series, I hope to shed some historical perspective on a topic that has much contemporary interest in academic circles and for the broader public. The border between the United States and Canada was constructed on Indigenous lands. According to historian Benjamin Hoy, it was a line of blood and dirt. This is the title of his recent book. The subtitle is Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. The book foregrounds what he refers to as the lived experience of the border and provides us with access to the perspectives that many Indigenous people have left for us, like this oral history at the University of Regina. Robert Goodvoice repeated the following story told to him by Henry Two Bears. One time, there's four boys, four or five boys, young fellows, they come north. These are Dakotas. They come north, and they saw a pile of stones, the height of a man's height, that would be about five or six feet, and they're all painted red. And they saw this, and they looked towards the west, and they saw another one over there, and the east, they saw another one. So they went up to the one east, they saw another one, they followed, and uh, that, and there's no end to it. So they come back and follow it westward, there's no end to it. So, then I was there, I wondered why those stones are piled up like that. It gives them a kind of a, a suspicious sort of an idea that, they're in the enemy territory. So they, they went back and told the elders, the leaders of the of the camp, and then they come north, cross the line into a town. They didn't say what town. They come to a big town, the south. That's a people of their own. They can. They have nothing to do with the people on the north side of this here landmark, these uh, red stones, that's the landmark, which is known as the boundary between states and Canada today. That's the way it was first started. The Dakotas call it Inya Shasha Pasadata. That means a pile of red stones. But many of them. Pile of stones and paint them red. Ultimately, the border between the United States and Canada discriminated against indigenous people and their way of life. Both settler colonial states imposed their vision of territoriality on the continent. But, as this book shows, this was a complex history. Yes, both countries used violence, hunger, and coercion to displace indigenous communities and their ideas of territory and belonging. At the same time, the book foregrounds their own efforts to come to terms with, and even build the border. We learn how federal governments, with their customs officers, border agents, police patrols, and surveyors encountered and interacted with Indigenous peoples and negotiated a border. Dr. Benjamin Hoy is an assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan. 
the author of numerous articles on the history of the creation of the border and the interaction of indigenous peoples with it. He graduated from Stanford University and was recently awarded a grant from the Henry Frank Guggenheim Foundation for his work on the history and understanding of violence. He's also working on digital mapping and board games. Ben, thanks for coming to uh, talk about your book. I'm super excited about this. You start the book with this fellow by the name Robert Good Voice. He says the border begins after 1812. Who's, who's Robert Good Voice and what's his story? Yeah, so, so Robert Good Voice is a Wapaton Dakota elder um, who generously left behind a lot of his, his recordings and knowledge at the Provincial Archive of Saskatchewan. And uh, one of the stories that he recounts, which is passed down to him from Henry Two Bears, describes the Dakota experiencing the border for the first time. And this is, is very rare that people actually talk about border experiences, right? That was one of the most frustrating parts about this entire project. And so he, he tells the story of a party of, of young Dakota boys who are traveling north from their encampment, and they come across a site unlike anything they'd ever seen before a pile of stones that are painted red and they're stacked five or six feet tall. And they see them dotting the landscape across east to west. And their first reaction is concern that they've entered an enemy territory, right? The Dakota understand borders, they understand boundaries. This isn't something that Europeans have an exclusive control over. And so they're concerned. They, they return back to their community and they talk to their elders. And they, they end up sending um, some, some of their men into the city to inquire. And they're told that, that these, this line of rocks is a division between Canada and the United States. One group of people won't cross to the south and the other group won't cross to the north. And for good voice, right, this is, this is where the border started. This was sort of the first moment that Dakota really sort of encountered the border in a tangible way. One of the most remarkable aspects of your book is the, the oral testimony, the oral histories. It's amazing reading it because you get these voices that, that come and tell you about their experience of the border over a much longer history. It's been 30 or 40 years of these brilliant community-engaged research projects where people have invested large amounts of time and effort creating these, these oral histories because they want these stories to be told. In one case, the, the Stalo Nation, for example, was very generous to provide me access to some of the oral histories that they'd had commissioned by scholars over the past few years and shared some of the resources that they had. Through his access to and use of oral histories, Benjamin Hoy is able to present his readers with not just the policy of the border, but what Carl Hella has called the lived experience of the border. Hella writes in his edited collection, Lines Drawn Upon the Water, and I quote, Some boundaries are mere lines drawn upon the water, often disrupted or even erased altogether by the lived experiences of First Nations people, end quote. You know, understanding borders as lived experiences really changed how I thought about them. I read his work sort of at the start of my PhD, and I was like, oh shit, I've totally misunderstood everything, as happens many times during a PhD. It's always nice when you come across a scholar who can explain in one sentence something really, really complicated. When I started this project, you know, I, I, I don't know. I was, I was trying to understand how a border worked. You know, I thought I had really simple questions. You know, how does this border work and how does it affect people's lives? Right? That's a really simple question. I thought about borders the same way many people do. A line on a map, uh, a line that divides nations and that has 
that has an enforcement mechanism. You see customs agents at airports, you see customs agents at borders, you know, that's sort of what I thought about borders. But as I read more and more, especially reading personal diaries about people who I knew were crossing the border, you know, hundreds of times in their lives, you know, I, I came to think of borders as, as something else, something more like a lived experience, a, a way of identifying yourself. And especially in the 19th century, which is the time period that I'm studying, there's just not enough police officers to guard the border, not in the way that we imagine it now. And honestly, even today, there's not enough border guards to actually guard this border. You know, you look at North Korea, South Korea, you can put all the landmines in the world, you can put walls and guards, and people still cross it, right? So a border is not a wall, right? It's, it's not something that prohibits movement. I started to think more of a border as a, as a prism. Um, that's sort of one of the, the metaphors that makes sense to me where the point of a border is adding hassle to movement. Right. It's, it's like it's it's like an annoyance. And if you annoy people enough, they actually change their lives in a way that's much more powerful than than having endless border guards. Right. They stop their movements before they even start them. Right. They reimagine their social networks in a way that that border becomes quite real without the need for endless amounts of guards and constant surveillance. And so as as I was doing more and more work, I started thinking, you know, I, I think a border is actually a conception that's sort of internalized in a population that makes certain kinds of movements easier than others. And a lot of that's done on an individual and sort of personal level rather than necessarily strictly on an administrative level. That's that, that, that metaphor you use, the prism. The prism has a particular role in your book because it, it refracts light. What, what do you mean by it? It, it, it's refracting and it's diffracting of, of light? You know, a, a prism, light enters a prism, but it doesn't get treated equally, right? If, if all the light got bent at the same angle, white light would go in and white light would come out. What's interesting about a prism is it slows certain kinds of light more than others. And a border operates exactly the same way. People approach a border and then it treats them differently. Some people it takes aside and adds extra hassle or extra time or extra fear or extra annoyance. And some people pass with relative ease. It is that unevenness about how things move across the border that give them their power. So in the 19th century, as a person, it was really easy to move across the border, very little hassle. But if you're trying to carry commercial goods across, suddenly you're encountering a very different landscape, one which is much harder to navigate. Um, and so you can see how it sort of bends, you know, if, if you're indigenous at certain points, crossing the border is either really, really easy or suddenly becomes very, very difficult. And it's this unevenness that makes it meaningful. And one of the interesting things about this is the border becomes significant first because it restricts government power, not add to it. So one of the first things the border does is it prevents soldiers from crossing it, which is a restriction of power. It actually restricts the government who's building it first. And that's the sort of moment that the border starts becoming more real. It changes and it adds power in, in other ways as it goes on. But like I said, one of the first things it does is it restricts its own government's ability to project power more diffusely across the border that it's created. And, and part of that, it's not just about one particular mode of power, but you talk about two different types of power, direct versus indirect power. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, direct power is what we think about the border, right? These are the border guards. These are the people who, you know, it's at the line itself. So you'd come up to the border 
and you're either allowed to enter or you're prohibited from entering. So this would be uh, Department of Immigration, Customs Agents, Soldiers, Northwest Mountain Police, right? All the people who are stationed at that line who are guarding against smugglers and whatnot. Indirect power is aimed less at, at the line, the stopping you from moving across the line, and more aimed at sort of the broader interior of each nation. And the goal with indirect power is attacking people's motivations to begin the journey in the first place. If you never get to the border, right, you're never going to show up in the administrative records as being turned away or accepted, but your ability to cross the border might be curtailed all the same. One way to do this is to attack what you might gain from crossing the border. So if you can't find work on the other side of the border, you're not going to make that journey. That's what's motivating you to cross the border, or if you can't get access to ceremonial supplies or to family members or other things like that, right? That's actually often much more effective in the 19th century, early 20th century, and I suspect even today, than the border guards that we commonly associate as having that sort of most power over how borders operate. The book brings together a lifetime of a border, from early infancy to adolescence to adulthood. Why, why did you strike upon that metaphor? That's, that's a great question. So this, like most of the things that I do, came from failure. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know I, I, wish, I, I wish it wasn't like that, but... You're not the only one in that one. I've <laughs> <laughs> it was really important to me starting out that, that whatever I did was accessible to the public, right? I'm, I'm a public employee, and I think history is one of the few disciplines where the highest level work that we produce can and should be accessible to the to everyday people right this isn't you know complicated biochem right this is these are stories about who we are as a people so early on in my career i was trying to explain what a border meant to other meant to people who didn't research borders and the the worst example of this was i was trying to explain it to my niece and nephew who were at the time under 10 and so i thought you know okay what i'm going to do is i'm going to write a children's story about how borders work and so it's this really cute story about a boundary stone that gets up and follows a little girl home. And every time it moves, the border moves with it and it causes all of this chaos. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explain this, this story to my niece and, and bless her heart, she's, she's focused, she's doing her best, but I've never written for anyone 10 or under. You know, I'm used to writing for people who have PhDs and I have grossly overestimated her reading ability and comprehension. And so she's sitting there, she's trying her best to understand. And so I, I started trying to explain what a border was to her and I realized I was using metaphors. And it was sort of at that moment, I realized how powerful metaphors are for linking something that you know to something that's related. And as I was practicing over the years, trying to come up with metaphors to explain the border, the body seemed to work the best uh, for a few reasons. Um, you know, I, I talk about um, the boundary stones, right? The line that they draw is the bones of the border, right? Because they, they structure everything, but on their own, they're just a pile of stone. They don't do anything. And you have the muscle, that's the Northwest Mountain Police, but without the, without the boundary stones, right? They don't know how to operate or where to operate. So these things have to be done in conjunction. They don't work one, but not the other. It would just be like a pile of muscle just sort of spasming on the ground. It would be really ineffective. Sometimes how you look at the military and in this book, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. And then what connects all of this together is the heart, right? The circulatory system. And this is the customs service. Uh, this was something that I didn't really realize, but in the 19th century, 
the Customs Service runs all of the government. This is where almost all of the money that makes these nations possible comes from. It actually comes from the border and the policing of goods across it. And it's the only um, institution for the federal government that's easy to expand. Every other piece that you expand costs you money. But this one, you generate. Where did that realization come in? In my dissertation, I was doing some administrative history where I, I wanted to actually map the border. And that sounds like kind of a dumb idea. It's like, of you know, the, the border is really obvious. It's just this line, you know, just follow the 49th parallel, it'll be really easy. But I was running into some research problems. And the problem was really simple, which was in some regions, I was finding a lot of material from the sort of standard places I'd look, like customs and immigration and, and military. And in other regions, I just, I couldn't find it. And this is a big problem for historians because one of two things has happened. Either the records have been lost, I guess one of three things, or I'm, I'm not finding them, or, and this is what I was worried about, the records were never created in the first place. There's actually a gap in control in that area. And I didn't really have any good idea of how I was gonna figure that out, except by mapping what a border is. And so, like I said, a border is not that line, right? That's the bones of the border. But what happens if you map the muscles of the border? So I set out to map, and this was, I think, a little overly ambitious. I was like, I don't know, I guess I'll map all of the customs agents, all the immigration agents, all the Indian agents, all the Northwest Mounted Police, all the soldiers. And it's not perfect. What I'm mapping is mostly mailing addresses. The problem is, you know, that's where they're stationed. But some of these people move dozens of kilometers. Some people are sick. And so I, I just wanted to get a sense of where are they kind of located. And what became clear is the border looks really different on the East Coast than on the 49th parallel. It looks very different on the West Coast than it does on the prairies. Just on a fundamental level, the types of administration in each region are just different. So along the Eastern seaboard, almost all of the customs agents, you've got a little bit down the St. Lawrence, but most of them are actually policing the border towards Europe. That's where huge amounts of goods come from and it makes sense. And there's almost no one in the prairies. And a lot of this is just logistics. Uh, some of it's also the volume of trade. It's really hard to guard open land because you can cross at any point. And so guarding port cities is actually really easy. There's only so many places that you can harbor a large ship. And so you can have very few people guarding a, a vast amount of commerce along uh, port areas. And so they're making a lot of really intelligent decisions, but it really shapes the border. It means there's very little customs activity throughout most of the border. And in those regions, you have Indian agents and soldiers policing the border, while in other regions, you might have immigration agents and other people. So just even who you meet at the border, it became clear was, was quite a bit different. And so the customs policy came out of this. As I was doing this research, I realized how some, somewhat inept some of these customs agents are, especially in Duluth and elsewhere. They're essentially making up their own rules. They're not really listen to, listening to the federal government. And I realized how very regional all of these border policies were. It wasn't the federal government mandating something across an entire nation. It was the federal government positioning people, but those people made their own decisions. And to understand the border, you had to change scale and drop down into that local and regional level. That's the thing that, I mean, the, the maps are super useful. I mean, I, I can see using those very well in a classroom to, to illustrate precisely the arguments you're making about the unevenness of this border. And that's a, that's a theme that, I, that I've been seeing in, in a lot of the, the literature about 
the the inability to maintain a constant line as you as you put it you call this the adolescence of the border can you explain explain what what, what do you mean by adolescence there yeah so so this is sort of the stumbling period so you know we think of adolescence as sort of you know they're, they're large sometimes you know fully grown but they're walking into doorways they're tripping over their own feet the border grows really rapidly you have immigration suddenly appearing and then 20 or 30 years later, it's this big, fully-fledged, very imposing piece that's less than a lifetime from the absence of a, a functioning federal immigration system to one that's actually quite strong. And you see this with a lot of the other institutions. You have, after the Civil War, you have the federal government really growing in both Canada and the United States very, very quickly. And unsurprisingly, when you add a bunch of people suddenly to administrative agency, you're trying to cover all sorts of new ground that you've never had to deal with on sort of a, a philosophical or theoretical level. Problems happen. And communication still is a little bit slow. And that leaves a lot of um, local autonomy to these individual agents. The other piece of this is, especially in the United States, the sort of economics of administration, the goal is to keep costs low. So stamp collectors are going to collect part of their own salary through the stamps that they sell. And so from sort of a, a very administrative point of view, it encourages local autonomy. And the problem is, and this is why we, we got rid of this system, if you tell the customs agents that they get a cut of every smuggler they catch, they're going to enforce the border in a very punitive way because they can get more salary, right? There's, the, <laughs> there's a large personal vested interest in policing the border in, in a particular way for your own personal benefit. And so this really encourages local autonomy, encourages conflicting policies. Sometimes customs agents, for example, will knock down the official rates so that they get more traffic through their port, which not really legal, but much of the stuff that's going on isn't really legal. And that's sort of the interesting piece of this is the federal government creates all of these rules and doesn't even follow them. I think that was one of the sort of big, the big sort of takeaways that I, I had was if anyone should be following the rules, it should be the government that created them. But that wasn't always the case. And, and that was sort of an eye opener to me. That's one of the things that I, I took away from the book, how you, you managed to bring in, it's, it's not just about Canadians versus Americans, indigenous settler. You have a whole bunch of different series of people who are being impacted by the border at different times. But at the same time, the book really is about Indigenous lands. It's about Indigenous experiences and living on the land. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that's the focus? There's a couple of reasons. So the first was, I was very tired as an undergraduate and a high school student reading about Indigenous history and having it end in 1812. And then it just disappears. And then it would come up for the white papers or it would come up for, you know, these, these, these sort of snippets or sort of moments but it always seemed crazy to me, right? That this history that was so very, very important suddenly ends right after this war. We were once allies and now they are just dependents. And now they're just gone. They're not even sort of dependent. They're just, they're absent from a lot of the textbooks that I was reading. And I, that be, I became very frustrated with that. And so when I was starting to think about what I wanted to do, I wanted to find a topic that was accessible to Canadians and Americans. I'd seen all of this wonderful scholarship that community-engaged scholars were doing, that um, people were focusing on an individual community, you know, the Métis, you know, Cree, et cetera. 
all of this wonderful material suggested that this broader narrative was just not correct. And it seemed both a missed opportunity and, and a real problem that this wasn't being translated into the kinds of material that was accessible, that was written for a public audience, that was written in sort of a national narrative in a way that was structured in a way that everyday people could understand, whether they were in high school, whether they were just interested in, in their nation's history. And so I wanted to do something to try to address that. I don't think this book on its own is gonna solve any of those problems necessarily, but I wanted to at least contribute in that direction and sort of push people to think, no, 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 we've been, we've been doing this wrong. We've missed all of these opportunities to incorporate this amazing material into how we understand the creation of nations. And as I was doing the research for this book, I was blown away by how often indigenous people built the border. I started out with this idea that this border was gonna be forced upon them, and that's part of it. But if you look at who's surveying the border, who's guiding the border, who's even remembering where the border should be, all of these are indigenous people. And so it's, it's, not, it's not that you know, I'm, I'm looking for indigenous people, it's, it's that they're there. There's this wonderful example of the Lake of the Woods, so the Lake of the Woods um, is this, this nonsense, confusing lake, right? It's not even really a lake. It's almost like a swamp. If you were to stretch out the coastline and all the islands, you could wrap this coastline around the world. And for whatever reason, they decide to put one of the crucial places where the border is going to hinge, where you know two pieces of the border meet, is going to be at the Lake of the Woods. They put a monument there, and then they lose it. And then they just can't find it. And what happened is, you know, it's, it's a lake, right? And there's flooding and whatnot. And it gets, it gets lit on fire first. There's a forest fire that goes through and then it gets buried under mud. And so, of course, they can't find their own marker. And so there's an old indigenous man that they meet while they're searching this lake for this marker. And he takes them and he shows them their marker, the, the marker that all of this border hinges on. And this is the Boundary Commission that does this. <laughs> yeah, this is the Boundary Commission. So they're coming in with the most sophisticated um, surveying equipment that they have available to them. And they can't even find a marker that they put there, you know, a, a little while ago. So they're coming back 40 or 50 years later, but they can't even find the basic marker that they themselves have put down. So the government doesn't even know where its own border is supposed to be. Um, and it, it requires on indigenous knowledge keepers, right, to remember these old sort of moments. And another example is um, the St. Croix River. And again, it's indigenous knowledge keepers that remember the river, that remember the stories that set the border on a basic level. In BC, they're the packers that carry the supplies in. They're the, the people who are guiding. They're the people who are keeping these people safe. On the plains, they're a team of about 30 AT scouts. This is the 49th Rangers led by William Hallett. The 49th Rangers assist with the Boundary Commission. So the Boundary Commission is in charge of actually putting the stones down to say where the border is gonna be. So they're surveyors. But the problem is, as a surveyor, you're entering land that you, by definition, don't know. And in this case, aren't necessarily welcome. And you can imagine, right, the Cree, the Sioux, all of these other groups are very suspicious when surveyors come and start making marks on their land. And so the 49th Rangers, are Canada's approach to this problem. Both Canada and the United States are nervous going out into the plains and doing this kind of work. And the United States' approach is the one that it will take many times, which is we'll just send a bunch of soldiers. Canada, for its part, takes a different stance. And I, I wanna be clear that I don't think this is Canada being more benevolent or being more kind. This is Canada being more weak. 
doesn't have the army that the United States does. It doesn't have the budget that the United States does. And it doesn't want to be engaging in wars, which are very, very expensive. It has a smaller pocketbook. Yeah, a much smaller pocketbook. And so it takes a diplomatic approach. And so its idea is we're going to send these Métis scouts. They're going to help with hunting, herding, carrying letters, marking trails, finding appropriate campsites, right? all of these sort of basic things. But their most important role is going to be going in advance of these surveyors and explaining what they're going to do to try and diffuse tension. Right? They're going to be essentially diplomats. They're going to smooth over relationships. So in, in each region, it plays out a little bit differently. But in all of the regions, right, the border can't be built without indigenous support. This is a super important and super interesting point you're making. It's also a very challenging and uh, subversive one at the same time to not a national history. And you're saying indigenous people were key to the building of these nations themselves. That the, the knowledge, the stories that they hold help define the border. And I wanna be clear, indigenous people don't have all of the power in this relationship. And they're doing this for very different reasons. You know, in some cases, it's an opportunity for employment. In other cases, it's a chance to reaffirm their own territorial boundaries against competing groups who are moving in on their territory. So by clarifying the border, right, they can draw on the Canadian military to help kick out groups that they're competing with. And some of this is they have a treaty relationship, and they take that very, very seriously, much more seriously than either Canada or the United States will. They're providing aid that that they think is what you would do as a good friend or a good neighbor. The reasons why they're doing this differed by community and time period and all of this. But I wanna be sort of very clear that they're doing all of this in, in good faith generally. And the border that they're building, the border that they're hoping to build anyways, isn't what the border ends up becoming. So many of the groups who would help build this border will later suffer immensely once the border takes on a very new shape they're not determining necessarily the outcome that they're looking for, but they're participating in that process. And to leave them out of that story is to not understand how it happened. Well, in many ways, it's reading back a much stronger federal government than existed. Um, we sort of joked about this a little bit earlier, but the Northwest Mounted Police are a disaster in a lot of cases. We, we have this sort of this myth of the Northwest Mounted Police, you know, marching out into the the Canadian West and bringing law and order, and it's just great. And you know, they're, they're powerful and strong, right? These are 300 guys who don't even have proper caps sometimes, right? They're in minus 40 degree weather. They're burning cords of wood so fast that they're getting pneumonia and other problems. They're struggling. They can only get supplies often through American transportation networks or through indigenous people. In many ways, they're dependent on the other people around them just to survive. There was some stories there that I was reading and I was just like, I was astounded. Yeah, so, so there's, there's all sorts of great stories. Uh, and these come from a lot of the diaries of sort of the rank and file men who are, I think, pretty understandably frustrated. So they're getting paid less, much less, like five to seven times less than the, the uh, Métis scouts who are guiding them. And right, they're supposed to be this sort of law and order force. The Northwest Mounted Police are being paid less than the Métis scouts. Yeah. You know, the Northwest Mounted Police think that they're in charge, right? Like most of the armies um, who have scouts. The, the best example of this, I think, is the, the Métis scouts are guiding the Northwest Mounted Police. And every time they hit water, the scouts stop and they take their tea break. 
right? And they might take 10 or 12 tea breaks over the course of a day. And it's driving the Northwest Mounted Police crazy because they, they want to get going, but they can't. You can see the power dynamic. Who actually has power in this relationship is who is dictating the pace at which the entire column moves at. And the Métis scouts are saying, I want my tea. We're going to march on my timeline, not yours. And that's sort of one of those, those moments where you can see how, how powerful uh, knowledge is, especially early on. You've just answered one of my other questions, which was, you know, so where, where, do, you, where do you draw these stories out? And so you, some of that has come from the, the, the journals of the Northwest Mounted Police. But one of the most um, remarkable aspects of your book is the, the oral testimony, the oral histories. You've got almost, almost a thousand oral testimonies here. Can you tell me a bit about collecting that, reading that, putting that together? What is, how is that important to this, this story? When I was doing my dissertation, um, none of that was there. Um, there were a handful of oral histories. There were no maps, which is the other sort of uh, really interesting part about the book. Partly because it took me so long just to understand the administrative part of the border. And the dissertation, if you ever happen to read it, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, is boring. Right? It's, you know, it's an administrative history. Now, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> I definitely have to go read it. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit tough, right? Um, and that was my attempt to figure out what on earth is going on. And at the end, I realized what I was missing was people. The, the dissertation was figuring out how the border works from an administrative level. But I knew from, from Carl's work and, and others that borders are more than just an administrative apparatus, right? Borders are about lived experience. And so uh, I took a couple years to sit down and try and figure out what was, what was a border like for everyday life? It's interesting because Lisa Wadowitz, who I've also interviewed here, made a very similar comment that she needed people. She wanted to make this a lived, a lived place. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I didn't have time necessarily to, to do any interviews myself. Right? We're talking about a border that's 5,000 miles long. Um, it's uh, across multiple regions. It's across dozens of different groups. Um, and all of the reading that I'd been doing was, was suggesting that there is an enormous amount of oral histories already out there. And so I relied pretty heavily on work that had already been completed. And what I was amazed by was how many oral histories have been generously provided by all of these indigenous communities because they want a different history. You know, these have been provided for, for films, um, trying to change how Canadians think about history. They're, they're created by communities so that their own community can remember this really important history later on. And so I was reading all of these stories and all of these diaries and all of this personal correspondence. And the, the sort of funny part about it was how few people wrote about the border the way I imagined, right? I just finished this, this big administrative history on how the border worked. And then, you know, someone would, would be writing in their diary and they just not, not talk about it. And I know from where they're going that they're crossing the border 15 or 20 times. I'm like, not once, not once did you write about the border, right? And it, it sort of made me think, I, I've misunderstood. I've misunderstood how this shapes people's movements, right? If this is just not something that's important, right? What mattered to them was the currency in their pocket, because that's a hassle if you have the wrong currency in, in, in a country. You get, you get less money at transactions. It's, it's a hassle to use. That's the way people understood it. Their access to picnic grounds or ceremonial supplies or bringing in uh, healers, right? That's how people understand the border. It wasn't the border guards that I had focused so much attention on. So the force of the border is not simply hiring more border guards, 
But what is it that creates the border for, for indigenous people in, in, in your perspective? So I, I think a lot of it is dependency. Any of, the, any of the moments where something went horribly wrong and indigenous people find themselves dependent either temporarily or, or longer term, that's the kind of coercion, that's the kind of um, stick that's used. Uh, and so it becomes a border of hunger, right? On a very literal level, starvation is used to keep people from crossing this border. And it's, it's a, a pretty dark part of Canadian and American history. That was one of the things that stood out for me. That I think it's chapter five, where it all went wrong, is that about the ability to control Indigenous people within the territory? Or how, how would you explain where, where did it all go wrong? Yeah, so for the Cree, being home means to be a nation, to have access to your land, to be able to raise your own children, to have political control. Right? And you can see this in the way that, that Cree words translate for reserves or reservations, right? as either fake land or as leftovers. And that emphasizes this monumental change that hunger and disease and violence unleashes. And it's, it's, it's hard to understand how monumental these changes are. You know, we're sort of in a COVID environment where COVID has, has reshaped our, our landscape, but the disease we're facing is nothing compared to the diseases that they're facing in the 19th century. They're losing, you know, over, you know, 100 years, 90% of their population in some cases, right? The, the disease that Indigenous people experience from the Columbian Exchange is, is so devastating. You can actually see it in the glaciers, in glacial records. So many people are dying, it changes the way that carbon is sequestered. The number of people died at such a high level that it changed the climate. So not only what we do, but how we die is changing the world around us. That's the backdrop for what's happening. A, a kind of change that I hope no one will, will experience in, in our lifetime. Starvation in 1873, 1874, which is right around when the border is, is being created, is so bad for the Cree at the Victoria Mission that they're eating snowshoes and moccasins as an attempt to satiate their hunger. Elsewhere, they're eating badgers and gophers and prairie dogs, right? This, this, is, this is desperate times. And so the treaties are being signed in this context, and they're being signed with provisions that Canada, quite honestly, doesn't, as, as James Daschuk and others have pointed out, doesn't honor. And some of this is cost-cutting, and, and some of this, I think, is, is Canada realizes this is how it wants to control people. And it's it's a very dark and, and gross way to make your border and your nation operate to base it off of uh, a group that you could feed and by treaty are obligated to feed and you choose to give either the minimum or, or not at all. It's, it's interesting that you've, you've connected this, this story of the Western expansion, the conquest of the, uh, the, the Dakota and the, and the Sioux War, the Red River resistance and the, and the, 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 the conflict in 1885 all of these the stories of internal violence to a, a unifying story about the border. Yeah, so, so that began with a question is, why on earth would you survey the border? Borders are really expensive. They're, they're really, really hard to make. When they're putting down the boundary markers, they're chopping you know, 10, 12 feet on either side of the border through every forest across a continent. And trees have this really awful habit of just like regrowing after 10 years. So you gotta do it a bunch of times. So the question was, why on earth would you build this border then? What's the motivation for this really expensive, really complicated task? And customs, it's really easy. Customs generates money. But all the customs people are located on the, on the East Coast and along the, the St. Lawrence. So why do you build this border out into the West? And some of this is claiming land and all of that. 
But that, I don't think, explains all of it. And so as I was looking through each of these regions, moments of crisis would appear and suddenly the border would lurch forward. They'd give the impetus to get over that hump, that initial expense. So on the prairies, it's perpetual violence. And this really surprised me. I grew up on both sides of the border. I went to school on, on both sides. And, you know, in the United States, you talk about all of these wars. You know, as, as a young boy, I was, it, it seemed much more interesting than the sort of tame and kind of bland Canadian history that I was reading. That just seemed to be, you know, distant politicians doing things. And as I was reading more and more, I realized how much violence is actually occurring either adjacent to the Canadian border or just across it. And how much of this fear of continued violence, whether it's the Cypress Hills massacre, whether it's the 1885 events, whether it's the Red River resistance, whether it's the Fenians who are trying to take over part of Canada in order to help free Ireland, right? There's all of these moments where violence is motivating action. And it's the embarrassment that Canada and the United States face when they they can't deal with this violence in land that they've claimed that helps encourage both the movement of administrators out into these regions and the surveying of borders. They're worried that if they don't clarify some of these issues, they may find themselves in conflict with one another. So for you, drawing that border is a way of controlling violence. The violence that the states are seeing is a threat to their sovereignty, to the control, but having an effectively policed border is a way of reducing the violence. And that's what they think. Um, it, it doesn't work exactly like that, um, but that's, that's, their, that's their dream. Um, what's really interesting about that is, and it's not in the book, but it's in some of the other work that I did, the same moment that they're building this really expensive and, and hard to make border, they're also engaging in what's called extra legal renditions, which is basically just transnational kidnappings, for lack of a better word. Bradley Miller's done some of this, um, Catherine Untermann, uh, I've done some of this. Or there's, there's people who are just crossing the border and literally beating people up, chloroforming them and dragging them back across the line. And, and sort of uh, a lot of Bradley Miller's work talks about the, the motivations for doing this, this idea of sort of a broader sense of justice, trumping this idea of individual justice. They, they, they're not even consistent. Different branches of government are sort of not talking to one another. And you get this, this border that's both encouraging transnational violence on sort of a judicial level, but trying to, trying to control it so it's only governments who are doing this kind of violence. Ben, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for this wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Max. I would like to thank Kathy Buchanan for the support that has made this postdoctoral fellowship. Thank you to the History Department at Queen's University and the Nugent Fund for supporting this series. This interview was edited and produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you. <laughs>